Beloved brothers and sisters, if you would please turn your copy of God's holy word again to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be this week focusing our attention using the more narrow lens. Sometimes we take broad lens uh, approaches. This week I'm going to have us focus on one verse. I believe it's, it's, a, it's a verse which seems in some ways rather unusual, one of Jesus' perhaps more controversial sayings, uh, certainly by far. But one I believe that if we can begin to grasp and understand will not only save us from much misery, but will actually cause the church and the endeavors that we are setting ourselves on as we seek to work for the cause of God and His kingdom and His righteousness here with the church in the Peoria area, I think it's vitally important that we understand what Jesus is saying here today and apply it. So if you would stand, please. I'm going to read Matthew 7, 1 through 6. We're going to be focusing this morning on verse 6, but let me read verse 1 through 6. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove that speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, I pray that you will indeed give us the wisdom of Christ to discern what are those holy things, what are those pearls, to discern rightly what pigs and swine are and to obey this command, not cast our pearls before them, Father, to not give those things away. But Father, we pray that in so doing, you would, as we said, give us the ability to see clearly and in doing so that we would see clearly because we have dealt rightly and seen clearly by dealing first of all in sincere repentance and faith with planks in our own eyes. Oh God, give us the ability to see as you see so that we might be a true temporal and eternal good for the cause of your kingdom and righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, brethren. As I began this morning, as I said, this phrase, this verse, Matthew 7, 6, speaks of things that we probably are not very accustomed to seeing much of in the scriptures. He speaks here not only of pearls, we, we can think of a few references there in holy things, but he speaks of pigs and of dogs. And, uh, this is a challenging verse. I remember years and years ago, as, a little, uh, as we begin, uh, my pastor back in Texas years ago, this was probably mid-90s, I'm thinking, but uh, I remember distinctly a sermon that he preached on this text, 
And he told a story at the beginning that I thought it would be worth sharing because it, it resonates with me. It's, uh, he, he said, you know, there, there, there's a true story, apparently, uh, that there was uh, these two uh, wealthy socialite ladies up in New York. Um, and uh, it was reported, um, they were very well connected, you know, but it was reported that at one point the two of them uh, providentially ended up both uh, showing up like at the front door of a Macy's or some department store there in New York at the exact same moment. And, and these two socialites, I should add, were very hostile. They were not friends by any means. Uh, the, these, these two ladies did not like one another one bit, and that was well known of the ongoing feud between them. And when they happen to see each other coming to the door at the same time, the one looks at the other and says, age before beauty. To which the other one responded and said, yes, and pearls before swine. <laughs> now, that may be, be, be a, a funny, but that, that always resonated. <laughs> that story kind of stuck with me, and I said, that's a misappropriation of the text. But I think, I, th I, think, I think that's a way that so many people will tend to use a verse and weaponize a verse like this, right? It's kind of like do not judge, right? Uh, whatever else in that previous verse people know, they, knew, they know do not judge. Here, here with the, the, they know, yeah, I don't get this, but I know don't put pearls before swine, and I'm the pearl and you're the swine. Um, we're not going to go there in that sense. But I do want us today to reckon in all sincerity with these pictures that Jesus gives us here. Because there are brothers and sisters in the kingdom, in the world, there are real swine, there are real pigs, and there are dogs. And if we're going to obey the command Jesus gives here, it requires righteous discernment to not cast our pearls, as we're going to see before them, not give them the holy things. Now, I want to remind you, though, that in God's in Jesus' order, that this phrase comes at the end of what we saw last week, and that's very important, because you remember Jesus told us that we must, it's not that we must never judge, but we must judge righteously. We saw that there's lots of texts in the scripture that command us to judge as the people of God. We, the Bible tells us that we are to judge within the church, not outside the church, but within the church, Paul uh, tells the Corinthians, you are supposed to righteously judge within the context of the body of Christ. And he even goes on in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians and says, do you not know that you will judge the world? You're going to judge angels, he says. Are you incapable of judging rightly matters within your own church? He chides them for it, for, not for being judgmental, but for not judging rightly, for calling evil good and good evil. But Jesus is quite clear that the judgmental, condemning spirit that is looking for a reason to be judge and jury upon other people, to see your sin and point it out and render the sentence against it, that type of mentality is not coming from a heart of love for the one who is the offender, is it? It sees that speck, it thinks it sees the speck in the brother's eye, and wants to say, I want to go pluck it out, and I want to just lay into it in righteous indignation, in Jesus' name, hallelujah. Jesus says, you don't want to be, first of all, God, God has a holy disdain for hypocrites. I mean, Jesus 
You just don't have to, uh, even a cursory reading of the gospel should show you Jesus, that's a word that Jesus uses, uh, and it's not something you want to be called. Those who honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from him, who say one thing and then do another. Read Matthew 23, we'll look at that a little bit later on, but you don't want to be that. So Jesus says, deal with your sin, deal with your weakness, your struggles. Before you cast aspersions on others, get on your face before God and say, search me, O God. Know my heart, try my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the ways everlasting. Have mercy upon me, O God, Psalm 139 says. But then Jesus says that if you've done that, then you will be in a position to see clearly. And you will then be in a position to truly help a brother or sister who does, in fact, maybe have a speck or have a sin in their eye. You'll be in a position, as Galatians 6 says, to go to that brother that is caught up in a trespass or a sin and restore them gently, looking to yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Right? I think so many of our, so often our efforts to restore others, maybe we think in righteousness or because we bring a holy arrogance rather than a holy dependence and humility. Lord, there but for the grace of God go I. God, I know that I have nothing in myself, but help me. Give me words. Give me wisdom because I love this brother or sister. And yes, there's a speck, but oh God, I know you've removed planks from my eyes. Help me and use me to bless this person and to be patient and meek towards them that they may be restored. But having gained that sight and the ability to then see rightly, Jesus also concludes this section on judging rightly with a warning. And in seeing rightly, not only are we going to see specks, maybe in brothers or sisters, that we genuinely, from heart of love, in Christ-like humility and meekness, can help them with, but also seeing rightly, we're going to also see sometimes that there are, in fact, some who are not, in fact, brothers, but who are, in fact, what Jesus calls pigs and swine. And there's going to need to be a holy discernment that comes from that. We can think of passages, for example, like 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul tells us point blank to, to the Corinthians. Because the Corinthians, you know, they were all about, they, 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 were, they were hating on each other within. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus you know, they had all their factions and divisions within. They couldn't get along to save their lives, and, and they were not preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But they also had taken towards other churches and even the things around them in Corinth and all the licentiousness. And the, you know, Corinth was well known throughout the Roman world uh, as, as, a, as a bastion of profligacy, of sexual immorality. To Corinthianize actually became a verb. <laughs> it was actually used uh, for uh, illicit, immoral sexual perversion. And they were basking in it. And the Apostle Paul tells them, along with getting it together within your body, loving one another, breaking down the walls that Jesus hasn't put up, he says, you need to put up a wall. 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? 
What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. He goes on and he says, Come out from among them, from among the dogs, the pigs, the unbelievers, the wicked, and be you separate, says the Lord. And I will do not touch that which is unclean. As we're going to see in a moment, pigs and dogs were the epitome of unclean in the Jewish mind. Don't touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And he concludes with this promise. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So on the one hand, while the Corinthians were to stop spending so much time seeing the specks in their brother's eyes, missing the planks in their own that were causing them to have all this factionalism within the church. They were also, in doing and getting their own house together, were to see rightly, to see that there were those that truly maybe called themselves believers, maybe not, but who were unbelievers, and who were in fact dogs and pigs, and to have, say, don't touch the unclean thing. So brethren, We're walking a fine line here, (laughs) but it's a line of righteousness. It's a line of holiness, and I want us to walk it in faith, in humility. So here's what I want you to see today. Jesus is calling us to exercise spiritual discernment in dispensing the blessings of God, giving the glorious grace of Jesus and of his kingdom to those who care to receive it, to those who value it, or at least those who consider it. Christ and his kingdom, but also withholding it, from in, withholding it in judicial or even priestly judgment from those that would despise and hate it and trample it. It may come to surprise many, but we do not have an absolute biblical mandate to just tell everybody about the good things of the Lord no matter how they respond to it. So we're going to see Jesus has some words to that effect, and he tells his disciples to speak truth, to find sons of peace, but he also gives words for what to do if that's rejected. So we'll look at that together. There's two key points today. Number one, we're going to ask, what is it that Jesus here tells us we are to protect or to not dispense foolishly? And then secondly, is going to be the question, what is it that we're supposed to protect it from? Because really those two key questions, I think, get at the essence of what he's saying here. Number one, what are we to protect? Well, Jesus defines it here as holy things or the things that are holy and pearls. These are the two images. And the sense here is he's saying to judge rightly the application here, but that we need to first of all judge rightly the nature and the value of the things of God and of his kingdom that have been entrusted to his church. Because if we judge rightly the value and the nature of these holy things, of our pearls, then we will know what to do with them, right? We will not give them away or use them wrongly or give them away foolishly, but we will deal with them as holy things. And we will deal with them as treasured things in righteousness. The holy things here... In Scripture, the idea of the holy things is that are things which are offered or dedicated unto the Lord. There's all kinds of passages we could point to, but a good example of this is like Leviticus 22. And it talks about the holy offerings that were given to the Lord, and it gives a long list of instructions for how that's to work. But the idea being that, you know, the people would give their holy things that would be dedicated to the Lord. 
consecrated to him as gifts, things given to the Lord, but also things that were then received. The Lord gave his holy things, his holy ordinances, his blessings to his church. So it's both things dedicated and given to God, as well as holy things set apart to God that are given to the church. His ordinances, the keys of the kingdom, his gospel, the seed, right? And the call is to realize that these are things that are set apart to God and that are gifts from a holy God, and then to use them in ways that will truly advance the cause of his gospel and of his kingdom as we seek first his kingdom and righteousness and lay up treasures in heaven. And I remind you, as we'll see that in a moment, that uh, the holy things actually stands in direct opposition to uh, when we look at the figure of dogs in Scripture. There's, lots of, there's several instances in the Old Testament where we see this idea of dogs show up, but it's typically in a case of people who have come under God's curse who are usually being eaten by dogs. Think Jezebel, right? Things that have come under the curse, accursed things that are therefore being given over to the dogs. So you can see the image. You see where Jesus is. Don't give the things which are holy, which are set apart to God, which are sanctified to Him. Don't give them to dogs because the things given to the dogs are actually the things which are under God's curse. The Jezebels. The wicked who perish and the dogs lick up their blood or eat them. You know, like the birds do on the, on the field of battle. He also speaks here then of pearls. Pearls, of course, refers to the treasures of the kingdom. We can think, for example, of Jesus' words, you know, in Matthew 13, where Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a man who finds that one pearl of great price. And for joy, he goes and sells all that he has. That merchant seeking beautiful pearls, when he found that one pearl of great price, he went and he sold all that he had in order to buy it. You see, the man understood that this pearl because it was a pearl of God's kingdom and the treasure that it was, he was willing to lose everything and give it all away because he saw the value of that. Right? That that one pearl in itself, though small, yet it retained more value than all of his other worldly possessions. Right? And he values it rightly. As far as what these treasures of the kingdom are, like I said, the idea is related to the holy things. These two are kind of, I would say they're, they're relatively parallel. But here's an example. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 6, here's some examples of the holy things and of the pearls that are ours, uh, of the kingdom of God, that inheritance that has been given to us. So there's many passages we probably could have looked at, Ephesians 1 and some others, but I'm going to use holy Hebrews 6 just because of its brevity. Hebrews 6, verse 4 and 5. Now, this is in the context, again, of a warning. A warning against those that would, in fact, potentially prove themselves to be pigs or dogs by despising, disdaining, rejecting the pearls, uh, devaluing them. But look what he says here. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened... And then he gives some examples, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, and so on. 
these phrases here, you know, he says that part, he says it, that what these people had, their treasure, was that they had first of all been enlightened. Their minds had been illuminated. They had experienced some degree of, 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 of an increase in their understanding of having heard the mystery of the gospel and of a God who is gracious and merciful, a God who saves sinners of the gospel by which he unites Jew and Gentile in one body through which he was redeeming the world. They would have heard this. They, they, you know, they would have had some enlightenment in their spiritual darkness. He knows sincere too that they had tasted the heavenly gift. That idea, I think the heavenly gift, if we equate that with Ephesians 1, 11 to 14, the gift is the inheritance in the Spirit of God, that inheritance of the kingdom. They had tasted on earth to a certain degree some of the benefits and blessings of being in the fellowship of the people of God and seeing His kingdom, the reign of Christ on earth as in heaven, the joy and the peace of it. They had been in and out of the body and the family of Christ on earth. They had tasted Later on in this uh, epistle, Hebrews 10, 29, it talks about they had participated in the blood of God's covenant by which they had been sanctified. And again, we'll, we could talk about the implications of a verse like that in other context, but I don't want to minimize it. He speaks there of those who were about to fall away, who had trampled the Son of God underfoot. They had counted the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified as a common, as an unclean thing. You see, they, they had insulted the spirit of grace, so on. So they had in some sense come into contact with God's covenant and the promises, the blessings, the curses attendant there too. They had come to worship perhaps, you know, in Hebrews 12, we saw this a couple months ago uh, when they had come, you know, on Lord's days to a degree and, and, and they had ascended the holy hill of Zion, Hebrews 12, 22, you know. They had come and they had the city of the living God that, to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. They had come to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. They had experienced some degree of this in the corporate worship of the saints. Right? They tasted these things. Hebrews 6 also mentions that they partook of the Holy Spirit. Again, we can talk about the implications of that in another context, but they had been and seen the powers of the Spirit they had seen the Spirit working in the midst of the people of God in miracles, in displays, great power, both to, to heal the bodies of people, but also to heal their souls and to restore their lives. They had seen these things. They had seen the fruits of the Spirit of transformed lives. He goes on in Hebrews 6, he said, they had tasted the good word of God. You know, the milk of the word, Right? Um, Hebrews 5, just the previous chapter, it ends right here. He speaks in Hebrews 5 right at the end. This time they should be teachers, but they have somebody need again to teach the first principles of the oracles of God and have come to need milk and not solid food. Because you know, Those who partake only of milk are unskilled in the word of righteousness, being babes. But they had tasted in some degree the milk of the word of God and the good things of the word of God and they were in danger of despising it and rejecting it. And lastly, he speaks in Hebrews 6 of the powers of the age to come. Again, the idea of miracles, of healing. They had seen miraculous and amazing things of the age to come breaking into the present age in the name of Jesus. 
all of these holy things they had seen and yet they were in danger of turning it away and rejecting it to go back to Judaism. That's what's going on in Hebrews. But what I want you to see is that all of these things would be part of the treasures of the kingdom, of the pearls, of those holy things that Jesus is telling them here to consider the value of what you have and then considering it, you know, to go on and then consider to whom you're dispensing it. But before we go to that second point, I want to ask you, do you, do you understand, saints, do you value the treasures of the kingdom of heaven? I mean, this is a poignant point you need to ask. It doesn't matter whether you're old, like Bob, or me, I'm getting there. I'm right on the edge, right on the cusp. Or whether you're young, I want to ask every one of you, do you see Jesus as that treasure above all treasures, as that thing above all things? Would you be willing to give anything on this life away that you may have Jesus, as Paul says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of your own? But that righteousness and that blessing that is Jesus. I pray before we go on to considering the dogs and pigs that you got that right. Because you see, saints, if you see Jesus as your greatest treasure and you see the treasure for what it is, that means that in reality you will have already gone through chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. If you see rightly and you esteem Jesus above everything in the world, and his cross and his church, his word is your great joy in his kingdom. I assure you, that in of itself is indicative that you're, you are or at least beginning to see rightly. Because it's only people who esteem Jesus as their highest treasure, as that pearl for which I would lose everything in his kingdom to gain. As that holy thing that I will not misuse or treat as a common and unclean thing. It is only people who understand that then who were really frankly, able to really be good to brothers and sisters with their planks who aren't seeing rightly. It is only people who see Jesus as the treasure he is who will actually then have the discernment to understand and see a pig and a swine when they know it. I will tell you, so much of the, my experience is so much of the evangelical church today seems to have lost their spiritual senses and can't tell a dog or a pig from a true saint because in reality they, have, they don't have spiritual senses that are attuned rightly because they don't value Jesus and his kingdom rightly. You know what the problem with mainline denominations with liberal quote, Christians? They do not value Jesus as their treasure. And because they've got other treasures the approval of men, the stuff of the earth, accolades, all the stuff they're holding on to here, they can't judge and discern rightly because they haven't seen the one thing rightly that actually matters. So before we go to point two, I really want to make sure we get point one here. Saints, treasure the Lord. And if there's anything, if there's anything at all that you are allowing 
in any way that you are not esteeming the holy things, the kingdom of Jesus and his righteousness and his people as the treasure above all treasures. Repent this day. Don't let this day get beyond you before you repent. Say, Lord Jesus, help me to be wholly consecrated, Lord, to thee. Go home, get your hymnal out, and uh, pull out and sing. Uh, help me out, Catherine. The, the, um, take my life, let it be. That's the attitude. Those six verses, that is the attitude and words of somebody who sees rightly. So having said that, let's go on to point two. question then is not only are what we are to protect but from whom are we to protect it Jesus says here and he calls the terms dogs and pigs the idea here is simply this that we are to judge rightly about those who show by their words and their deeds that their nature and value is not fit to receive and enter into God's kingdom to not give the holy things of the Lord tritely away now I will tell you when we talk about dogs and pigs, I don't personally have pigs in my field yet, but some of you have done this. Pigs are pretty filthy animals, aren't they, Micah? <laughs> they are. And I will tell you, I've got a, y'all know my dog Bailey. I mean, ba Bailey, he's a domesticated dog. He's not a wild dog. But I will tell you, that tongue of his has been in places that make me cringe, and uh, he'll come up and sit on my lap. <laughs> it's like, you know what? You know, so even a domesticated dog, you get that sense of unclean, right? And that, that's the overarching idea here. In the Jewish understanding, according to the law of Moses, the, the dogs, pigs were unclean. When you look at the list of clean and unclean foods, these are among them unclean. The pigs particularly, they are, uh, the pigs particularly were reviled by the Jews as just emblematic of the Gentile nations, we'll see in a moment, but just filth, all of the abominations of the non-Jews who didn't have this law, these accursed people who don't have the law and unrighteous. As we're going to see, Jesus actually then turns that upon them. But the reality is, is that the pig was like the poster animal for everything that was wrong with the world and the Gentile world and the Jewish mind. Unclean, filthy, impure, unholy, unlike us, <laughs> Right? That was the mindset. And the dogs, like I said, the dogs were the things that you fed the accursed things to. Um, so we need to get these images. Everything about dogs and pigs, sex, unclean, unholy, impure. Jesus notes here that specifically the pigs are those that would trample the holy things under their feet. There's actually kind of an inverted parallelism going on here. Um, I actually agree with those who, have, I think rightly, have said that what, what Jesus is doing is using a device here, the inverted parallel, where when he says don't give what is holy to dogs, that's like the A, right? And, and then uh, don't give your pearls to swine, that's B. But then lest they trample them under the fit, that actually refers to invertedly to the pigs. And then the dogs... Uh, the turn, turning and tearing into pieces, that's the dogs. You see it? So it's like A, B, B, A. Um, that's what Jesus is doing. So the sense here, I think, is that, you know, when he talks about it, he says, think, for example, here then, don't give your pearls to swine lest they, lest the swine do what swine do. They turn and they cast them under their feet. Right? 
Pigs don't have any sense whatsoever of value. All they like to do is roll around in the muck. We read about this in Second Peter earlier, right? Pigs' favorite thing is to be bathing themselves in mud and muck. Reminded of the Proverbs in Proverbs 11.22, you know, it talks about like a ring of gold in a pig's swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion, right? The idea being that uh, a woman who is beautiful in the right sense, Proverbs 31, you know, uh, give her the works of her hands, beauty, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. But in the same way, as stupid as it would be to take a gold ring of value uh, and instead of using it for ornamentation, to take in uh, use a nose ring to pink out in the same foolish, stupid way, because what's the pig going to do with it? Is the pig going to know what it's for? Not at all. The pig's just going to take and bury his face in the mud and ruin the thing. Well, in the same way, you know, the proverb says that the beauty in and of itself, if it's not paired with discretion, the Proverbs 31 one, it's like, it, it's that same analogy. It's, it's putting a, a, a nose ring on a pig, and the pig has no idea what to do with it, so they just do what pigs do, and they ruin it and destroy it. That's why charm is deceitful and beauty is vain in and of itself. In the same way, Jesus says, be careful because the dogs will then turn and tear or turn uh, and tear you in pieces, right? You can take and give your pearls to swine. You can give your holy things to the dogs, but what are they going to do with them? Well, they're going to do what wild dogs do, right? They're going to destroy and eat and devour the accursed things as if they were accursed. I'm reminded of Jesus' the words the prophetically in Psalm 22. You remember he speaks there. He says, For the dogs have surrounded me, prophetically speaking at this time on the cross. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. If ever there was an example where for your and I salvation, the holy thing was for one brief moment, given to the dogs <laughs> and treated as an accursed thing, there it is, for our salvation. But the dogs did surround Jesus and they tore him to pieces, did they not? I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts 20 when he's speaking to the church at Ephesus. He warns that coming in amongst you, wolves will come in. Remind you that wolves are part of the dog family. Um, they are part of the canine family. Wolves with their sharp teeth, they're going to come in and they're going to devour and destroy among the flock. That's what wolves do, right? Wolves seek out the sheep, and because they don't value the sheep except as meals, um, all, the, all the wolves can see is not, hey, the sheep is a glorious thing, it's a good thing, uh, and they don't value the good shepherd. All the wolves see is to seek to kill and steal and destroy, like devil does, right? Wolves see dinner. So they come in amongst the people of God and they devour and destroy holy things. Those people that are set apart to the Lord. Now, I want to consider, of course, the source of the defilement of the uncleanness of these dogs and pigs. Maybe to put it this way, what is the source of their piggishness and their doggishness? Well, turn to Matthew 15. Jesus actually addresses this. What is, what is it that makes pigs pigs, makes dogs dogs? Why do they do what they do? Jesus really gets right at the heart of it here in Matthew 15. You know, he's just started at the beginning, and he's been talking about the Pharisees and, these, and the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. 
and how Isaiah prophesied rightly about them, that they honor him with their mouth but their, and with their lips, but their heart is far from him, that they worship him in vain and teach the do- as doctrine the commandments of men. And then Jesus follows that up. He calls the multitude around, having just given this re- rebuke, essentially having just called the scribes and Pharisees dogs and pigs, as we're going to see. He says here, in verse uh, 10 following, Matthew 15, Now when he called the multitude to himself, he said, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man that makes him unclean, right? It's what comes out of his mouth. This is what defiles a man. This is what renders a man, demonstrates him to be unclean like a dog and a pig. Skip down to verse 17. Do you not yet understand, Jesus says, that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach is eliminated, but those things which proceed out of the mouth, these come from the heart, and they defile a man. They show him and make him unclean. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies, These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile a man. You'll notice that many of the things that Jesus spoke there are the same sort of things that Jesus has already addressed in Matthew 5 and 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. About the righteousness that pleases the Lord, and it's more than just outward. It's a righteousness that flows from the heart, and that is not in the letter but in the spirit because it seeks and it loves what is righteousness. It hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Therefore, it pursues righteousness rather than faking righteousness outwardly. That's the heart of the matter. So Jesus says, in a sense, if you look at the scribes and Pharisees, look at what's coming out of their heart. These things in this list here, they are unclean. They are defiled, even though they're sitting there calling you and everyone else defiled for not keeping the minutia of the law and washing your hands in the way they prescribed. The reality, Jesus says, is they're the unclean ones. They don't see the plank in their own eye, and they're sitting here calling out your speck. They're hypocrites. But I think just to add insult to injury, you keep going on. Jesus tells us, there's a, there, the way Matthew words it is very important. Look at what happens right after that. Verse 21. Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from the, that region. And So again, a woman of Canaan. These were the accursed Canaanites, right? What were the Jews supposed to do? Drive their sorry backsides out of the land in God's name. And here it is, a woman of Canaan coming to Jesus. She's not part of the people of God. She is rendered and deemed by the Jews as accursed, as an outcast, as a dog and a pig, filthy, contaminated by their polytheistic, ungodly, immoral ways. Just add it up. She comes to Jesus from the region, cries out and says, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, son of David. She recognizes who he is. That's amazing. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, what Jesus does next may, may, may seem incredibly harsh. He answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away! She cries out after us. Jesus answered and said, Woman, I, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
He's setting the bait here. And she, this woman from Tyre and Sidon, the Syrophoenician Canaanite, she came and she worshipped him, said, Lord, help me. Jesus answered again. We may look at this and say, what? Jesus said this? It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. Let me put that in another way. It is not good to take the holy things and cast it before swine and dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And you see what Jesus does. He says, he answered and said, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very moment. You see what's going on here, brethren, is that this woman who was considered a dog by the Jews, unclean, she comes, and unlike the Pharisees who really were dogs and swine, this woman comes and she demonstrates true faith. What she demonstrates is that, in fact, she is not a dog or a pig at all. She demonstrates that she is one who has been washed, sanctified, set apart to the Lord and been made clean. Doggish no more, piggish no more, daughter of the living God, amen? That's the point. Peter, you remember learning this same lesson in Acts 10, right? There's Peter, Cornelius' house, and the sheet comes down filled with all the unclean animals three times. Peter, rise up, take, kill, and eat. Oh, no, Lord, I have never done this. And he hadn't. You know, I've kept unclean foods. That which I have called clean, do not call unclean. That which I have sanctified. The point being is Peter, the Gentiles, using Paul's language, who did not know God, having the law written on their heart and doing the things of God's law in righteousness, they have become a law to themselves by the Spirit. And to close, as Paul says at the end of Romans 2, why don't you go ahead and turn there because you want to see what really happened. Let me tell you what really happened in the story of the Phoenician woman. Paul actually describes it theologically. Remember in Romans 2? Romans 2, frankly, is almost like a long, expanded version of, of Matthew 7, verse 1 through 6. All that Jesus talks about being hypocrites, seeing the, uh, seeing the specks in others, but not seeing the uh, doggishness, the piggishness, the logs in your own eye. Paul starts the chapter and he challenges the Jews with all their hypocrisies. And then he mentions in verse 6 and following that the reality is that those who by true faith, like Father Abraham, they seek for eternal life, they will, by patient continuance in doing good, they seek for glory, honor, and immortality by faith. Verse 8, they will, they will, uh, it says, verse 10, they will receive glory, honor, and peace because they work what is good and righteous, whether they're Jew or they're Greek. There is no partiality with God. On the other hand, those who, though having the law, but if they are, verse 8, self-seeking, they do not obey the truth, they obey unrighteousness, there will be indignation and wrath on them no matter how much they think of themselves in their law. Right? There will be tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. 
And here's the difference. Skip down to verse 25, chapter 2. You want to know what's the difference? Circumcision. The Jews prided themselves on their circumcision because the circumcision has made us clean, set apart, holy. But look what Paul says here. Circumcision is indeed profitable if you truly keep the law. That is, if you love righteousness. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keep not the, uh, keep, uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law that is in faith, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, again, in true faith, will he not judge you who with your written code and circumcision are nevertheless a transgressor of the law, who sees the speck in others and spend your time condemning others, but you can't see the work of the law in your own eyes? Then here's the conclusion of the matter. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, of the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. I won't ask you to turn there, but Paul says the exact same thing in Philippians 3. Listen to what he says. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 2, beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation <sighs> what a, what a, of those who circumcise their flesh, but whose hearts are not circumcised. The mutilation, the dogs. You see what he's saying? Beware of them. Their righteousness is all outward. And it's all self-seeking and it's covetousness and it's divisive. But it's not of the Lord. And that's the second point then. That's the source of their defilement is their heart and the overflow of the heart. But what are the fruits of it? Well, Jesus couldn't be more clear. Turn to Matthew 23. Let me just say clearly. What, what are the fruits of this defilement? Jesus just gives a few I'm not going to have you read it all. Let me just give you a list for time's sake. Matthew 23, speaking of these Pharisees, of these who look at everybody else's speck but are completely blind to their own logs and are demonstrating themselves to be dogs and pigs in truth, filthy, despite their outward circumcision. He says they're hypocrites. They condemn specks in everyone else's eyes and so on. He goes on and he says that they say but they do not do. He says that they do their works because they covet being seen, being envied, and coveted by men. They love to be called, Jesus says, imagine me, Rabbi, Rabbi. They love to be called Father, Father, in the sense of, you know, um, they love the title. They love the accolades that go along with having the position of spiritual authority. Translation today says they love to be called teacher, Jesus says. It'd be if I may use an analogy, it would be the person who covets, comes in and covets this, I, you know, my goal, I want to be an elder or a pastor. And he says, why? Because, well, you're stating that, you know, because ultimately at the end of the day, I like being called pastor. Jesus says it has nothing to do with that. It doesn't mean it's a sin if you refer to me as other pastor, but brethren, the point is it's like to what end? 
away with the titles if that's the thing for you. It says they exalt themselves, again in Matthew 23. They pray pretentious long prayers to be seen or heard by men, to be thought of as holy. They covet, they devour wealth of widows' houses. They love to argue. They're very argumentative people like this, the Pharisee types, right? They argue about every detail of the law. I've met people like this, right? They, they love to get in theological debates. Now, again, is there a place for some theological debate? Yes. Are there places where we need to have genuine, earnest discussion and sometimes rebuke over heresy? Yes. But you know what I mean. There, there, there's guys, women sometimes, who just, they, they, in their pride, they love to get into deep d- debates because they, they like secretly of thinking of themselves as well-learned and smart. It becomes a cover for pride. I've known way, way, way too many guys like that. Folks, I have seen way too many of those guys make shipwreck of their faith and of their marriage in the households because they had a head full of knowledge, but somehow it never got from here to here. They could never see the planks in their eyes while they were learning so much about how to see the specks in other people's eyes. Many of them ultimately, dis- ultimately left the faith. I've got, I could give you a long list of men that I have known who were, had libraries full of commentaries who could wax eloquent about every detail of theology and minutia way beyond me who have subsequently left the faith and ruined themselves and are now sons of the devil and pigs and dogs because they did not truly see and believe what they said they taught. Pharisees. They clean the outside of the cup, but inside they're full of extortion, self-indulgence, uncleanness. They're blind guides, straining out gnats, swallowing camels, missing the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, sincere faith. But boy, they can argue about the details of super versus infralapsarianism of the best of them. Real quickly, turn to Second turn to Peter. We looked at this passage earlier. Brother Bob read this. Second Peter chapter 2 and the epistle of Jude actually are common called uh, Jude, which is just one chapter, are like twin chapters. If you've ever read Second Peter 2 and Jude 1, you see that there's a lot of parallels between them. Um, I'm going to focus today on Second on, on Peter 2 and talk about the fruits of defilement, of doggishness, of piggishness. Again, I want to remind you where it ends. 2 Peter 2 ends after this long description. He says, It has happened to them, verse 22, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. That's what dogs do, right? I've been amazed at some of the things that my dog will (laughs) sometimes lick her. He's like, oh, that's nasty. Sows having been washed, having been cleaned. I can take a pig, Micah, and I can take a hose to him and squirt him down real good. As soon as you're done, you let that pig anywhere near a mud trough, what's he going to (laughs) do? He's going to go roll in that mud again. You know why? Because pigs don't like clean, they like mud. Dogs like vomit, they like filth. And mine likes hot dogs too, but... uh, That's where we end. Dogs do what dogs do. Pigs do what pigs do. It's their nature to do so. 
So let's skip back then. Let's look at verse 1 to 21, just 50,000 foot view. What does he say there? Let me give you some examples. How do we get to verse 22? What does this look like? What is the fruits of this doggishness and piggishness? Well, go back to verse 2. It says, first of all, they bring in destructive heresies in ways. Many will follow their destructive heresies, their destructive ways, and the truth will be blasphemed on their account. They're false prophets, false teachers, right? They secretly, you notice verse 1, it says, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. People don't normally bring in, uh, bring in uh, you know, their grenades, their bombs in through the front door, do they? Terrorists, those who seek to do harm, they bring them in through the back or in their coat pocket secretly. It's always, always done under the cover of darkness. He goes on and he describes, look, he says, verse 3, covetousness, exploiting others with deceptive words. All right, again, there's that deception aspect, secretive, deceptive, so on. Look down at verse, um, look at verse 10 and 11. He picks it up again down there. And especially of these, they walk according to the flesh in their lusts of uncleanness. They despise authority. One thing you can always tell about pigs and dogs, ultimately, is that they, they may try to cover fleshliness and their, their appetites and lusts, Outwardly, but inwardly, like Pharisees, they're full of corruption. And eventually it shows itself. And it says also that they really hate authority unless they happen to be the one in it. They despise authority. They seek to undermine authority. They're presumptuous. They're self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. They'll go speak to all sorts of people about their complaints and grievances about this person or that person, you know, this, let me just say this, brethren, this is a humbling thing for all of our Christian brethren who spent so much time lambasting, whether it's Biden or Trump. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely believe the gospel has political ramifications, brethren. But you see in the parallel in Jude that Jude did not even, uh, that the angels did not denounce Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. They're not afraid at all to speak all kinds of things against those in positions of civil authority. Brethren, when, when you see somebody who just will just trash, publicly trash the names and reputations of those who are by God's, as, as Brother Ashton read earlier, whom God has put in positions, that doesn't mean I agree with them, right? I, I can look at Rita Ali right here in Peoria as our, as our mayor, and I can say, I know what Rita Ali stands for, and there's some grievously abominable things that she is for. She is highly pro-abortion, right? She, she is bad in that way. She is drunk deeply at the wells of socialism in her thinking. And she would like to impose that on Peoria, but I assure you, both if I address her, if I was speaking to her, or if I'm speaking to one of you, in this church we will pray for Rita Ali, we will not trash Rita Ali. Pigs and dogs have no issues with that. They speak evil of dignitaries. Same would be of pastors. You know, how many times I've seen church splits, divides come about because you know, we'll go talk to other members, this, that, or the other, about pastors doing this, or pastor stinks in this way, or this policy is bad, or whatever. I've seen so many churches come crumbling down because instead of talking to the pastor, 
following Matthew 18, we go speak to everybody else about the pastor. But that's, that's, that's an example here. They're like brute beasts. They speak evil of things they don't understand. Verse 12. It goes on and says, they count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They waste away their time in pursuit of entertainments instead of productive labor, God's kingdom. They carouse in their own deceptions, verse 13, while they feast among the saints. They entice unstable souls, verse 14. They're divisive. They foment subtle or sometimes not so subtle coup d'etat within the church or against spiritual or civil leadership. You see that sort of spirit that is looking to bring about insurrection or mutiny, whether it's in the church or whether it's in, even in the state, that's got that mutinous sort of, again, that doesn't mean we endorse with the righteousness. That doesn't mean there's not a way for righteous divine resistance. We're going to talk about that Friday. But that does not mean, you, when you, anytime you see somebody, brothers or sisters, who just got this spirit of, <clears throat> the government is it? There's a righteous way to resist wrong and to stand firm for the Lord with humility and meekness. To say we must obey the Lord rather than Christ. They promise liberty. They speak great selling words, verse 18, of emptiness. They allure those who have escaped from error. They promise liberty while they themselves are slaves of corruption. And then he concludes... They do ultimately what dogs do is they go back to their vomit. They do what pigs do. They've been washed. Maybe they were baptized, maybe whatever, but at the end of the day, because their heart has not been changed fundamentally, they go back to wallowing in the mire. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes it takes a while. I remind you of just a couple of verses real quick. Why don't we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul makes a very insightful thing here regarding eldership, but the, the principle applies more broadly. He tells Timothy, verse 22, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in another people's sins. You keep yourself pure, Timothy. In other words, be careful, Timothy. Don't just, in your rush to get fulfill these, be careful. Don't be stupid. Be wise. Be discerning. Think of 1 Timothy 3. Look at it carefully, because here's why. Verse 24 and 25. Some men's sins are clearly evident. Their doggishness and their piggishness just goes before them, <laughs> preceding them to judgment. But some others, those of some others follow later. And in the same way, the good works, the good deeds of righteous faith, of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. You see the point? Sometimes it's immediately obvious. Other times, though, it's kind of like the wheat and the tares, right? Just give it time, let it grow, pray. But the discernment, the difference will become fruition over time. Lastly, Titus chapter 1. Again, in the context of elders, it, it, both times Paul speaks here, but look what he says to Titus in this context about, you know, laying elders and so on. But then he goes on, he says that there are those, uh, verse 10, many insubordinate within the church. Again, they're divisive, they're insubordinate against authorities. They're idle talkers, deceivers. 
circumcision. Their mouths need to be stopped. They subvert households. They teach things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain, self-gain. Skip down to verse, uh, verse 15, because here's the point. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, doggish, piggish, all right, nothing is pure but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in their works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. Point being is that to those who are truly clean, those who are, uh, those who are saints of the living God who have been given a new heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness and therefore which is submissive, which trusts in Jesus, which waits on the Lord, which, you know, all, the fruits of the Spirit, right? The Beatitudes. To those who are the inheritors of the kingdom, he says there, they are pure. And what happens is to the pure, all things are pure. They are the ones who, like Jesus, because he was pure, he can touch the lepers. And instead of him becoming defiled, the lepers become clean. But on the other hand, to those who are defiled, who are unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their outside may be as clean as can be, whitewashed tombs like, like, like the Pharisees, but even their minds and conscience are defiled. And so to those who are not pure, despite their claims of being pure, they actually make unclean everything they touch. Their defilement defiles other things. Piggishness and doggishness is contagious. Holiness is contagious too, I might add, and purity. So what does this mean then for us, brethren? I'm going to close with this. Here's the implications. There's a lot that could be said, and there's a lot of other texts that relate to this. I'm just not going to worry about it. I'm just going to remind you of two things. One, last verse I'm going to have you look at. Turn to Revelation 22. This will be the last verse. This is really simple. Just look where this ends, because I think this is really important. Revelation 22, verse uh, 13 to 15. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter in through the gates of the city. Remind you that earlier in chapter 21, remember it describes those gates of the New Jerusalem as being 12 gates, and each one of those gates is a, remember? It's a pearl. So they're going to enter in to the gates of pearl because they have valued the kingdom as a pearl. They have the right to that tree of life and enter the gates of the city, but outside, cast out are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers. Again, think Jesus here, not only the ones who murder the body, but those who hate their brothers in their hearts. Think Sermon on the Mount definition of murderers here idolaters who covet and envy the stuff of this world and other things more than God, who loves and practices a lie. Brethren, that should inspire in you a holy fear. Oh God, may I never ever be a dog or a pig. May you keep me holy. May you keep me close to the cross. Keep me seeing Jesus as my treasure. So then what does that mean? Here's what it means. I'm going to summarize chapter 7, verse 1 through 6, and apply it to what we're trying to do here at Res Press. First of all, 7, 1 through 5a talks about the need for holy humility. 
before we can go forth, brethren, and be of any good in Peoria for the cause of the gospel and to work with the church, we need to begin, as Catherine said Wednesday night, identifying, calling out some big logs in our eyes, owning some of the things that have been done. Humility. And this isn't some sort of wokeism, some let's make reparations. This is just calling it what it is. I can't wipe away the past, and I'm not going to wallow in false guilt. My Lord Jesus has said that he has washed away that guilt if we have repented of it. But we need to call it out and say, look, Jesus has made it clean. We're not going to sit there and go on beating ourselves up with the guilt, but we need to acknowledge that there's guilt and there were planks there, and maybe we need to just call it out. Lord God, remove our planks. Help us to see rightly. Give us grace. But then he says, having done so, we move from humility to helpfulness. The end of verse 5. Once having done that, then we're in a position to truly be helpful to the cause of Christ in Peoria as we work with other God-fearing faithful churches, as we seek to establish ties with them and build lines as a unified church among those who call upon God from a pure heart. We can do that because now we're no longer proud, arrogant hypocrites, but we're actually to say, you know what? We have committed ourselves to the Lord, but we do see some things, because I guarantee you, brethren, as we go work with our Baptist friends, or maybe some of our other even Presbyterian friends in town, there are going to be some things going on in some of those churches that we'll, we'll look at and say, Ew. Now, there are some things which are abominable and piggish in some churches that we can't align with. But there are some things, you know, we, we, I can look at the United Methodist, or I can look at the First Apostate, whatever, and say, yeah, that's dog, that's pig. But I can look at other brethren and say, they're not dogs, they're pigs. They maybe have got a speck that I see or some things there. But thanks be to God, I can address it and work with you because I've had planks removed from my eye. And I'm not going to come and crush you with it because I've got humility, because I know the grace of God. I'm not going to be arrogant, but I'm going to wait on the Lord and work and pray and trust in the Spirit of God and the Word of God to work. But then, brethren, as we go forward, and this is my third and last point, what we also need in this, as I said, is holiness and discernment. Because the fact of the matter is, we are going to, as we seek to engage the cause of Christ in Peoria, we are going to run across some brethren, some churches that want to be part of this, but in effect are doggish and piggish who don't believe fundamentals of the Christian faith, who call what God because as an abomination they call it a, a good thing they call evil good and good evil brethren those are not the problem with them is not specks in their eyes the problem is that they are fundamentally not part of what we're doing here so what we need is all three humility deep humility so that we can be helpful but in being helpful we need the discernment of holiness so that the Lord will help us to walk rightly May the Lord our God help us as we go forward. Let us pray. Almighty God, these verses search within. They expose so much. Father, we are, in truth, just sinners saved by grace. But Father, what a great grace it is. A grace that cleanses within, without, grace that teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldliness, we are to pursue righteousness, 
and holiness with those that call upon the Lord from a pure heart, as Titus 2 says. Father, that's our yearning, is that we would do that with those who call upon you from a pure heart, that we would be aligned with them and that we would be pure ourselves and humble and gracious and gospel-minded, even as we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Father, this task seems just too big. Father, I acknowledge in myself, I, I say with Paul, who is sufficient for these things? But Father, I believe that you are a God who is near to those who call upon you, those who seek your kingdom and righteousness. You will give us all that we need. So Father, we pray that you would keep us humble. We pray that you would make us helpful. And we pray that you would grant us the holiness to stay with you and to separate from those who are not truly yours. To separate from those who would take holy things and trample them who would take our pearls of the kingdom and the gospel and devour them and us. Oh God, give us discernment as we walk in your way. In Jesus' name, amen.